Avengers Infinity War. Now, nothing will ever be the same. Can anyone make sense out of all that's happened? These guys are going to try. Peter Melnick, local newspaper production associate, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And Eddie Wilson, upstate New York morning radio broadcast announcer in the Sullivan Catskills, inundated with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. What happens next? Listen up, true believers. It's time for another episode of The Marvelists. Previously on X-Men. Cyclops, Storm, Banshee, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Colossus, Children of the Atom, Students of Charles Xavier, Mutants, feared and hated by the world they have sworn to protect. These are the strangest heroes of all. Stan Lee presents The Uncanny X-Men. Welcome everyone to The Marvelists. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode, which includes the discussion of 2003's X2, X-Men United. It was X-Men United, right? It was. third would have been their last stand, and that wouldn't make sense to do a last stand in the middle of your story arc. It wouldn't be an arc either. <laughs> broken line. It would be a broken boat. <laughs> I mean, Colossus got on there, and so did the Juggernaut, and the Blob, and weight jokes I'm making at right now, people. But anyway, before we get into that topic, let's get into our social media. Go on Facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like ski on there. Go on the Twitter machine at The Marvelists. Give us collectively a follow there. Give myself at Peter Melnick. And Eddie's just going to throw a rock at you if you want to follow him on Twitter. But it's a Nerf rock, so... Do they make those now? I'm sure. They make purple, green, yellow, and blue. But teal, go to help people. No one wants teal. Give them to the collector. Exactly. (laughs) I sold it! (laughs) Collect them all. Also, give us a follow on Instagram at... The Marvelists. Give myself a follow at Peter Melnick and yourself at Eddie9193. You can also send us an email in our email bag, themarvelists at gmail.com. You can also go on TuneIn Radio now, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. Rate, review, and subscribe. When you're on iTunes, people, do that. You're going to do that? You're doing it. Cool. Thank you. Because other than people can't do it. It's the right thing to do. Mm. It is absolutely left-handed. Or right-handed. Like me. Or middle-handed. We don't know. There's a middle hand now. It's like in the chest. It just pops out. No, that's alien. Well. Just pops out. And remember, Disney is going to be owning that very soon. So I got to tell you, the the xenomorphs, they're my favorite Disney princesses. (laughs) They are ladies, Eddie. Okay, fine. Think about it. You thinking about it? I'm not. Okay, good. Like like the song said from the Muppets, moving right along. When you're on Stitcher, go on stitcher.com slash premium and use the promo code at checkout. Marvelists. And what you'll be getting is a free one month of Stitcher Premium. And when you have Stitcher Premium, you're going to get a crap ton of content on there. Not just being able to listen to our show, which you can do in your free version, but you'll have a crap ton of other content. And I keep saying the word crap ton because, to be honest... It really is. It's a metric ton of crap. It's also your word. Well, yeah. We can't take that away from you. 
I was trying to go much with the as Heston, I have tried. No, the Heston quote: "My cold, dead, crap-ton hands, crappy hands." I'm like Doctor Strange. My hands are crappy now. Oh, but they could be fixed with the power of magic. Yeah, but you don't want to wind up. Never mind. But when you go on Stitcher, you're going to get all that content, such as the WTF archive with Mark Marin. You're going to get Weird Al Yankovic's concert library from his most recent tour in 2018. And you'll also get Wolverine, The Long Night, which, Eddie, you loved listening to. You were a big fan of it just as much as I was. And it's a very compelling story. It's typical with the X-Men. That's what I love about the X-Men mythos. There are so many different stories and... In so many different mediums, comics, movies, television, video games, now a podcast. Did you ever think that would be an option? No, no pop-up really. books. Pop-up books. Pop-up books go with, back with le- with the a long way back, and they the still they still. No, I remember my first pop-up book was uh, actually when Man Landed on the Moon. Growing up as a kid in the seventies, got my first pop-up book, and it was the Apollo Moon Landing, and at different intervals there were. Parts where you had the spaceship attached to a little wire inside the book. Very cool stuff. And they're still doing it. But that's my first... See that? You just triggered a memory. Happens. This this is the specialness good, good of... Good shot. This is the specialness of the Marvelists. This this may be about at least our 25th... Have we kept score on how many podcasts now? No, but one day I'll check it. Okay. But... But we're probably in that, in that area if we've done all the movies... Now, you won't get pop-up books on it, but with Stitcher, stitcher.com slash premium, use the promo code at checkout, Marvelists, and you'll be able to get one free month of Stitcher Premium. And if you want to stay on, it's only, only... Only, I know, four ninety nine a month. Exactly. So, stitcher.com slash premium, and use that promo code at checkout, Marvelists. And also, Eddie, yeah. we've got something special in this episode at the very end we're going to be playing our interview that we conducted at Terrificon 2018 with Arrow showrunner as well as X-Men Gold writer Mark Guggenheim. And Mark is an absolute pleasure to talk to. Really, really chill dude. And I got to tell you, it was... First off, I recorded the interview twice. I botched it during the first one because it wasn't recording. And that happened. However, Mark was very... Very kind to sit back down and do it again. Sympathetic to your puppy dog eyes. My my plight. And your quivering lips. just Much like the quiver that Oliver Queen on Arrow has. Exactly. Exactly. Don't miss the mark, Guggenheim. Or Ruffalo, which you should also listen to, by the oh, way, people. Oh, what a, what, a, what a reaction that got. Exactly. And may still be getting... Even before we get into our topic at hand of X-Men 2, or X2, if you want to be cool, like all the cool kids saying X, you know, we're too, we're too uh, we're, we got to speed things up. We just got to say X instead of X-Men, because that's way too many syllables. No, no. But before we talk about X2, let's talk about one of the big news stories that's going on right now. Mark Ruffalo was recently on a podcast called The Marvel, no, the most recent issue of Entertainment Weekly... Brie Larson decided they should break the internet, and what they did was they released a few photos from the set of Captain Marvel, as well as the cover, which a lot of people, before the cover was released, everyone was worried, oh no, what are they going to do? They're going to have the green costume, not the red, yellow, and blue. Green? No. Well, people, they did have the green costume, 
as you saw in the photos where she's with the Star Force, but also on the cover, she's rocking the red, yellow, and blue. And I've got to tell you, I'm really looking forward to seeing Captain Marvel cosplayers that look like her, you know, with that outfit. We've been seeing at shows, going back a good year, I'm going to say, characters, maybe not as up-to-date and in some cases, a tighter, form, more form-fitting, yeah, like a spandex, sleeker-looking, yes, yeah, spandex material Zentai than we've suits. seen before. But we have seen some of them, and it's been like, okay, this is this is cool. What's going on here? Not, but now, no, but now, yeah, we're gonna get the leather or synthetic leather or whatever. But it's cool looking. It's a really cool looking costume, and that's what I love about the Marvel Cinematic Universe with their portrayal of these costumes. And it's kind of ironic that. In the last episode, I complained about the leather outfits, the, you know, the jumpsuits that they have in the X-Men movie. Yeah. But the reason I don't like those as much as I do these is because of the fact these are still maintaining a semblance of what the characters' costumes look like. Yes, it's made out of leather, whereas the other ones are made out of spandex or whatever. But these, these still have the actual look of it. And to be honest... It makes it easier for a cosplayer to wear as well because it's a little bit more realistic. You don't have to worry about, you know, being super form-fitting and having your nip-nips show. You want it to be – you don't want the nip-nips to show, Eddie. Depends. I'm, yeah, right. Exactly what you said. Oh, those are bulky to wear. I've never worn them, mind you, but okay. what I got to say, though, is those costumes like, – like, like I said, these are just cool-looking. And, yeah, I'm, I'm – I'm on board with Captain Marvel's costume. You know, and I see what you mean by the green one as well in one picture of the uh, Star Force. Eddie, stop reading magazines and just podcast. Jeez, Louise Simonson. I needed another look at that. Jeez. Louise Simonson. And and Walt. Oh, great people. Great people. But, Eddie, also on top of the reveal of the costume, we saw what the scrolls look like. Yeah. Holy crap. I'm on board. Oh, I am so on board. And obviously when you see the scrolls in the comic books, they're very like sm- like smooth skin, whatever. Until you get to the chin. Yeah. Multiple. But when I see like the scales and all the weird little intrinsic details, yeah, I think it's awesome just well, the way they, it looks. Well, with the scrolls, they, they, I think in the comics they've gone through an evolution also. Yeah, because in the oh, beginning yeah. it was just simply the green look about them and nothing more as far as details. Absolutely, night and day between the 60s version of Skrulls with I, I, Fantastic Four comes to mind primarily, I believe, and of course Captain Marvel. And then now coming into, well, you had whole, the whole what Dark Reign stuff. That's part of my ongoing quest to read. Um, and the, the uh, Skrull invasion, secret invasion, all that had Skrulls and really, you know, darker green tones and I can't think of an artist that, that would come to mind, maybe along the lines of an Alex Ross, that really gave those characters some full depth, I think, and more believability even to uh, pull that off. And now here we are in the movies with the tech that there is available, the makeup, etc. Yeah, we're there. We're on board. What do you think is going to be the overall story that we see in this movie with the scrolls, with the with Carol's group and everyone, the Star Force, and they might be teaming, evidently based on these photos, with Lee Pace's Ronan, the accuser. Well, you know, as the article had I had previously read, had intimated, Ronan is not yet 
on Thanos' side. So we're going to see how he turns. You know, it sounds like a Star Wars thing, perhaps, but it, uh, it remains to be seen what steps have to go in place for this to, to actually happen. Yeah, and even with the scrolls coming into the conflict with the Kree that goes back to, geez, I guess in the decade of the 70s, that's even perpetuated and still you find that animosity where if you're coming into getting to kind of know these characters, you know, oh, Kree, Skrull, they're opposites. You just, it's like an automatic given. So we get some elements, hopefully, of how that all came to be. It's looking really good. And then on top of all that, what they included in the photos was a first look at the age-defying techniques used for a certain F-bomb-dropping man by the name of Samuel L. Jackson. Eddie, when you saw the first look at him, what did you think of that? Hey, I know who that is. He looked young. They really did a good job de-aging a man who already... You know, he's transcended time and space. Well, I'm trying to think now. They have done that to uh, other characters, or I remember seeing a couple others that are... Hank Pym. ...have been like that. Um, Robert Downey Jr. Yes, Downey for sure. And, of course, everyone's favorite Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell. Okay. That that more recently, yes, exactly. As well as uh, the aforementions. It's really, really cool. And I'm interested in seeing how it's going to look in motion, because obviously... You can take a picture of something and, oh, wow, that looks great. But you got to see what he looks like moving, his mouth moving, oh, yeah. his eyes moving. And did I expect to hear the words, a de-aged Samuel L. Jackson? No, I did not. And I'm kinda, I am kind of kind of like that idea. I think... They made it up. They... De-aged. Yeah. They... Hmm. And I know they also... Disney is very big on incorporating actors who have passed on. As we've seen with the Star Wars movies with Grand Moff Tarkin, played by the late, great Peter Cushing. And to see him reanimated and brought back to life, that's cool. And Real cool. Very cold. In fact, never mind. Too soon. Just, too soon? <laughs> too soon, Eddie. Too soon. I'm interested in seeing also what role that she's going to play in Infinity War 2 or Avengers 4 or whatever we're calling it. Because we might actually know the name of the title. This episode is recording on September 12th. I'm wondering when we're going to get our first announcement of what the title is going to be. Because we still haven't heard anything. Yeah, it's it's anybody's guess, I think, as far as when. As they've stated, they've said it's going to be a title that scares us. They have stated that. Okay. So what could it be? I realize this is a topic that we've discussed in the past, but now we've let it marinate for a little bit. Yeah, and it's also within arm's reach, so to speak. But it's going to probably start off with Avengers, semicolon. No. 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 Why no, would they no. do Avengers It's going to start with Marvels. It's going to start with, yeah, Marvels and the. <laughs> Marvels, the Avengers, colon. Keep that colon clean. <laughs> you know, this is the fifth time Eddie's given that disappointed look. And, and it's getting to be a bad habit. And I don't mean the nun's outfit. <laughs> oh, I just love penguins. So now, Eddie. Yes. I think it's time we discuss. Yes. X2. X-Men United. And that's how they build it, I believe. X2, X-Men United. That, I think, is actually on one of the photos that I would post accompanying this podcast. Do you remember the first time you saw this movie? Probably, and I do do believe it was in the theater. The theater? Yeah. And uh, quite a bit to... uh, take in, absorb, if you will, with all the characters involved and 
their continuation of of who they were and you kind of getting to know a little bit more about them and their you know characteristics and traits and and so on this is a movie that establishes the love triangle the bizarre love triangle to quote new order new order between scott gene and our hairy man logan he is pretty hairy yeah i was absolutely enjoying the hell out of the relationship between the three they did such a great job the nuances between all three i especially love the absolute hatred wolverine has for scott right down to the you know that scene with the motorcycle your bike needs gas fill her up or whatever yeah no that's just pretty much spot on yeah exactly so great just there but it kind of turns around at the end when we'll get to the end of the film that relationship has has a uh, totally different look and maybe not as expected as you might think this is considered one of the greatest comic book movies of all time and one of the best comic book sequels ever made i'm partially in agreement about that yeah i i would say at least in terms of a sequel yes I think this is one of the strongest of the X-Men movies. This absolutely surpassed the first X-Men for me. And I like this movie more for the fact that it also utilizes non-traditional looking mutants. Especially with the introduction that we see within the first 10 minutes of Kurt Wagner, the Nightcrawler. Yeah. And man... He knocked it out of the park with this portrayal. Not the first Nightcrawler, by the way. There is another Nightcrawler in Marvel Comics history, but this is the one that in in the, the Munich Circus, he was known as the Incredible Nightcrawler, which is funny how they use, use Incredible again, as he says it among, about himself in a couple of points in the movie. They got his character down from the skin pigmentation to, you know, the accent. Add, adding the, the accent, the, 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 the German accent, to, I believe, and not evident really in the comics, but but the whole idea of the, the um, tattoos or scarring yeah. uh, designs chiseled into his skin, so to speak, uh, that he had, which apparently were atonement for sins, of which he told Storm he had quite a few. Did you get a feeling of a... Uh, they were kind of pushing towards a romance between the two characters? I kind of got that a little bit. Storm and Nightcrawler? Yeah. Mm. I felt little parts of that. I'm just like, huh, they would be cute together. Unless they put the whole faith component in there to help their relationship. I, I don't know. I didn't quite get that or needed to uh, maybe look at it that way. I think they were just trying to get to know who each other were, is, especially when Logan first met Nightcrawler. Yeah. Like, who's this? And you know, the addition of others. I mean, in all honesty, Alan Cumming is by far, like, I always hear the statement of Robert Downey Jr. is the definitive Iron Man. Hugh Jackman is the definitive Wolverine. Alan Cumming is the definitive Nightcrawler to me. Anyone else who portrays the character is going to have really big shoes to fill when it comes to the character of Nightcrawler. You can say that for a, for the bunch of them, really. I get, not Storm. Storm didn't have that power. She didn't have that commanding force that the comic book version has. You also had a different Storm in another, a younger, 
X-Men movie that came out later. Was it uh, Apocalypse, I believe, or Days of Future Past? A different version of, of Again, Storm? like she she was a nothing character in that movie as well, from what I remember. No, she was just a child and developed... Uh, yeah, but then she's got the characteristics. She's older in that. Yeah, I thought she was younger. I believe in Apocalypse she shows. I haven't seen oh. the movie since it first yeah, came out. Yeah, so those, those will get our future watching. Yeah, we will be doing a redo of that, but I remember... Yeah, she was a part of... The uh, Four Horsemen. So definitely an apocalypse. Yeah. So when I see her, I'm like, "Eh, she's really not that. What Storm should be is she's just as good enough to be a leader if need be. And she's been leader in many iterations of the X-Men. Yes. And she has that forceful commanding nature to herself that I feel Halle Berry's portrayal, she doesn't do justice. And Halle is an amazing actress. Yeah incredible talent not greatest Catwoman, mind you but she rules i love halle berry but in these movies she's just there she's an ancillary piece and i i want more of that character she's not given the leadership role exactly we don't have and we don't need a a uh uh, who's the leader of this group conflict and you don't need that but you you didn't really and you didn't really see that plan yeah if need yeah. But she also was was the go-to, I think, and the first person, if I recall, that piloted the Blackbird, the sh- the X-Men's ship. I believe so, yeah. So she had that under her belt, you know, kind of thing, which is good. So she was in control or in command of, of that, as well as the elements and nature and, you know. I don't think you needed to, to bring out her character as as much we establish who her character is and what she can do. She's a team member who contributes and has some significant conversations, whether it's with primarily with Logan and whether he's going to be part of the team. You know, then then be a part of the team. If you're going to be with us, be with us. Right. So she does have some good lines in that way, and she also notices what might be between Logan and Jean. Yeah, she does have significance even in the first in the first X-Men movie and she's the one who's there when Senator Kelly who's been, you know, poisoned so to, I guess you could say from the radiation that was given to him by Magneto and he, you know, becomes a pool of water, runs back, he's dead. Senator Kelly is dead. Okay. But we do see Senator Kelly back in X2 played by Mystique for some period of time. And Grace, we're skipping around. We'll get into the beginning. And it starts with Nightcrawler. You know, kind of after the opening, like you had in the first X-Men movie with Charles Xavier speaking about mutants and going into a couple of sentences worth of just opening stuff. You're getting the White House tour. You have Nightcrawler bamfing in and out and knocking out all the security guards and threatening to kill the president, it seems, until he's actually kind of stopped and, and he just, you know, poof, bamfs out of there with that dagger that says mutants, mutant poof, freedom now. Poof, mayonnaise. Poof mayonnaise. Mayonnaise. Poof mayonnaise. Poof mayonnaise. Wow, there it is. There's a whole generation of people like me who used to think it was poof mayonnaise. It's not poof, there it is. Poof mayonnaise. Not there. No, I knew it from when the song came out in 93, and that's it. You didn't think it was poof mayonnaise? Tag team that. Mm -mm. Well, you weren't a dumb five-year-old, Eddie. Uh, And you didn't go to the sporting events either. I didn't, but that was (laughs) associated with that, attached to that. Poofed mayonnaise? Mutant freedom now. We're seeing already the conflict that will 
only escalate. And we see it again in the future subsequent X-Men movies between Homo sapien and Homo superior, between humans and mutants, and whether or not they're really actually going to be able to get along. Uh, One species must (laughs) dominate the other. We see that later, of course, in X2 with trying to wipe out, with the help of Cerebro, wipe out all the mutants or wipe out all the humans. But cut to Wolverine outdoors hiking. He finds Alkali Lake, the industrial complex. And what's going on there? It's going to be a recollection of his past. Finding Storm and Gene and Scott on this uh, field trip and, and getting some hint as to what Gene's character is going to turn into because her telepathy is a little off and her dreams are getting worse. And then, of course, you're introduced to another character, that of uh, first name John, but uh, real name, as, as Magneto asks him, Pyro. I'll be honest, Pyro is the most useless character in this entire movie to me. He's just a do-nothing character. He's a poopster when they're coming out of the Drake house, and all he says is he's the worst one of all and throws fireballs around. All he does is... Blows up police cars. He was... He obviously causes the big scenes, but to be honest, another character could have done that. He doesn't really have much character development, and he's just there. Well, he was part of the... uh... The villains, the bad guys in the circle of, of X-Men lore. Yeah, I get that. And maybe not as much in the comic books either. But perhaps it was something where, you know, he gets used in the next one we'll be doing, The Last Stand, which will be a face-off with, with Bobby. Nah. And maybe just showing different degrees of mutants and which way they, they go. Their powers, which way they're leaning towards. Rogue is in the middle. She wants to, in the third movie, get the cure so that she can be able to touch Robert people. Robert Smith's group? And not, and not, yeah, Robert Smith's group. It's Friday. I'm in love. Mm-hmm. And get to be able to interact with other people without killing them, without always having to have gauntlet gloves on. You know, up to the elbow. Man, gauntlets in the Marvel Universe are just not a good Rampant. thing. Rampant. No. The, that's why I tried to preface it. So what it, What I also stopped for a minute was, and not to be uh, coincidental, a cliche, is Xavier is able to freeze everything that's going on. And that happens later, actually towards the end of the movie. We have the appearance of Senator Kelly. Wait a minute. What happened? I thought he died. Well, it's Mystique, actually. So he meets up with Colonel William Stryker. Wolverine comes back to the mansion, meets meets Bobby, and they uh, they start to develop a relationship, actually, as well. Which it's, it's cool seeing the relationship between these two characters build up on the screen because also you, it leads to great lines like, how do you, how do you two... We're working on it. Yeah, that's right. It, it's, it's... With Rogue in there, yeah. Yeah, it's just like cute little things like... The audience is like, ah, that's funny. That's funny right there. Now, I got to tell you, there's something that I didn't pick up on maybe in an initial viewing, but this last one recently, with uh, seeing Magneto in his plastic prison, reading The Once and Future King, and um, Stryker coming in and subduing Magneto, and now you see the back of his, meaning Magneto's neck, and a circle there where some some liquid is dispensed into that as if to control him. If I'm being honest, that is the most brutal takedown I've seen of a character in any of these movies. Yeah, well, just the way they knock him down and just... Yeah. It's vicious. It's, it's absolutely there, yeah. And then you factor in his whole backstory of 
the abuse he had in the concentration camps and all that. And it's just, it's messed up. It is. It's uh, you know, brutal the way it, they do it. It must be some kind of, I don't know, truth serum because Stryker says to Magneto, now let's talk about the house that Xavier built and the machine called Cerebro. So there's that manipulation that's that's going on. And in some cases, you're not sure whether to believe Magneto is actually going to be on the side of Xavier. He's, of course, on the side of the mutants. But a mutual threat or enemy is in the form of William Stryker. And so the line that comes in a little bit later that he says when Xavier visits him, you should have killed me when you had the chance. That line jumps out at me. He's such... And this is, again, another movie where Magneto has some valid points. He does. As they've coined on Jane Miles' Explain the X-Men. He has many valid points. And you find yourself... I also I believe that physical abuse is what helps you root for this character eventually. I agree. It's yeah. a redemption of Magneto. And to include this character in so many movies is a really bold move because it also makes him into that important figure in the mutant, the mutant movement. You don't see a lot of villains reprise their role. You obviously see Thanos in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but do you see, for example, let's say the Mandarin again? Where's the Mandarin, Eddie? That's what I've been just, saying. How many just, weeks now? Just once. Where's the Mandarin? Yes, no, not once you saying that, but I digress. Once an episode. It's my, it's my quota. It's there, but it's not there. It's there, but it's not there. It's complicated. And I say, I say, I say, it's... <laughs> it's Foghorn Leghorn, now visiting the Marvelous. You're I am quite the blowhard, so... You're a chicken, and I'm a chicken hawk, and I'm going to eat you. I just, I think it's... It's interesting to see a character make so many appearances but also have that redemption arc that he gets. Yeah, that's not prevalent in many characters, but this is quite exceptional. And the friendship, you know, that is still actually there between Eric and Xavier. When he tells him, I messed up, I told them everything, you do see that, like, remorse in his eyes. To a degree, yes. Yes, you do. He's... He's still a messed up figure, but man, he does... I, I say he does have uh, re, uh, remorse for it. Because it's doing bad against mutants in what he has done by giving Stryker all that information. So there's, I think, the regret and the remorse. And it happened to affect Xavier also. You're also soon thereafter introduced to the sidekick of Stryker in the form of... Asian actress Kelly Hugh, who we are told is named Eureka. Not Eureka. Eureka. But we only hear as Eureka, who we know to be Lady Deathstrike. And I've got to tell you, a lot of these movies, it's a very, again, once again, a bold decision to kill off a character because you don't know the reaction these characters are going to get. In this, no one was clamoring after her death for, oh, why did they kill her off? I wanted more of Lady Deathstrike. Mm. Whereas on the flip side, you have a character get killed off in the form of Killmonger in Black Panther, and everyone's like, wait, you killed him? We we wanted more of this guy. <laughs> Why'd you kill him? That's stupid. Yeah. yeah. And it is a, it's an interesting decision. 
you see these characters get killed off and they don't know the actual reaction to this stuff. They don't know, oh yeah, this person's going to be killed off and actually have a positive reaction. Well, who we thought was killed off, I remember, I believe in the first X-Men movie was Mystique, but no, she's back in the second one and does her usual thing, whether she's impersonating someone else's voice or looking like another female or male character and to the point where she gets tries to get intimate with Wolverine, who feels, and you see the three claw scars on her stomach. But like I said, she is back. She comes back. What I also, on a side note, wanted to mention was she, in the form of a security person, is looking up where to find Magneto in his cell. And on that computer screen are several names, one of which is Lebeau, Rimi. And hey, there's Gambit. And Wade Wilson. And wait, yeah, there were others that I didn't uh, register, but yeah, there you go. It's very much fan service in a roundabout way. And I think it's cool to see, like, it's for the people at home. It's a lonely Friday night. You've got no parties to go to, but you've got your DVD of X-Men. Well, sorry, people. Well, you have X-Men, but you also have X2, X-Men United. And you're pausing on the screen, and you're just like... Oh, my God, you guys. Did you see? It's the real name of Omega Red. Oh, gee. Look at him. Omega Red. The letters. The kerning. Sorry, I'm going graphic design nerd in this, but. Yeah. Bring it back. Take it. Man, that voice really takes me out. Holy crap. Take you out, all right. To the ball game. Uh, I don't know if that's the right place. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks, Eddie. I don't care if I ever come back. But, man, imagine me doing an entire episode in that voice. I can't. I don't want to. It hurts my throat just thinking of that. Yeah. Hurts your throat, too, and you haven't even done it. My brain. This is true. Now, the plot of Stryker comes down to attacking the school for gifted youngsters, the, the mansion. And we get to see other characters in respect, even though they're not named, we see and kind of realize if you're in the know about what some of these can do. Kitty phasing through the bed to escape. Perhaps a girl with a shrieky voice who I immediately associate with Banshee. I didn't go with Banshee, but I believe his daughter. Banshee's daughter? Do- Siren? Yes, yeah, Siren. Siren. I thought that was Siren, former love uh... interest of a Wade Wilson. Yeah, maybe, but just a young kid there, and I don't know. I guess maybe I was thinking too early to bring into the arena of the characters. But, you know, timelines don't necessarily mean that they're correct. And you also have Colossus there in the form of a strong... Black woman who don't need no man. (laughs) Bare-shirted, no-shirted, bare-chested young guy who does, uh, you know, suit up. That was Colossus, correct? Like, there's no question. That that had to be. Yeah. And to be honest, out of all of the actors I've seen play Colossus, all, I believe, two of them, yeah. he looks the most like the character. And I'm just like, wow, that, that was Colossus. It looks that like. It. And then, of course, when we get to the Deadpool movies, sounds like it would be Colossus if he's truly Russian. Duh. So, so you have the combination of those two, and you know, maybe there'll be a future Colossus that'll... Uh, Look sound better when they're when they're combined, but he's portrayed I think to look maybe a little bit younger than um, 
the other, uh, sorry, to look younger than Logan, but yet, if not on the same level, probably older than the rest of the students. He's also taller, has a bigger presence, and says to Logan, I can help you. And Logan's response was, help them, meaning the other students. Yeah. Which is fine, because they find the escape route, the tunneling underneath, and they come out way, probably a half mile away from the, the mansion out in the woods somewhere. In a van down by the river. Whatever it takes. And the meeting of Stryker and Logan. How long has it been? 15 years? But I think one thing to note was this is, and they even said it when the movie came out, that you do get to see for the first time Logan's trademark berserker rage, where he is just on a killing spree. But he's defending the turf, the home. You know, it's not to the point of a Deadpool thing where it's, you know, blood flying and slashing everywhere parts going. And No, you're seeing stabs and that means dead, done, etc. Whether it's crouching down, waiting for the, the, the soldier of fortune and, and Wolverine's claws going into the top of his shoe or straight up in the chest kind of thing, he's doing what he does best. And what he does best is not very pretty. Or nice. Or nice. And you also see how Logan does not remember the Alamo. what's going on or otherwise. But yet he knows how to hotwire Cyclops' car with just one claw so that they can make their escape after Bobby puts up that big ice wall between Stryker and uh, and Logan. Would you say that the the wall, if formed in a circular fashion, would create an ice hole? That's a play on words, and I didn't come to play <laughs> with that. I just think it's, it's interesting. Crude. <clears throat> yes, how, and I'm not sure if it manifested itself in the comics, that... Bobby, by touching the wall, Eddie, when an ice hole manifests, it could trans, it could it could transfer down the wall and go across the room, but Bobby could do that just by freezing the uh, air molecules and so on until it took a uh, a grenade somehow stuck into the ice wall to be blown apart so they could continue their hunt for the mutants, and and who had to pay who. When driving Cyclops' car, figuring out what that device was, but before that transmitter phone device, uh, getting a sample of, was it in sync's bye bye bye, that that made this I got to tell you, so dated. But I loved every second of how dated it was. Right down to, for example, Iceman's haircut. This is such a product of its time and. It brings back warm and fuzzy memories. Somehow, this is more dated than X-Men was. And X-Men came out three years prior to Mm -hmm. this. But yet, that seems more recent, more prevalent. And I feel like this movie is just frosted tips away from just frosted tips and overalls to be a late 90s, early 2000s kind of movie. You know? It's a change of... They're entering a new millennia, new decade. Savage Garden is going to be playing like any second now in this movie. Um, you know, they started a couple years earlier. Like Truly, madly. 98, 97. Deeply. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. But not in the bar where we have the guard who was with uh, Magneto in his plastic prison and Grace, a.k.a. Mystique. Please note on the television screen an interview with Dr. Hank McCoy. 
on the whole oh, boy thing. oh boy did not look like a good enough hank mccoy i'm sorry yeah but no yeah frazier you know they playing just, the role they just had a uh no not not even where you would order really hear too much speaking on that character's part but just uh, i think i'm sorry just a warm body oh for god's sakes took that uh yeah you get the point oh for god's sakes niles mm-hmm. that was the joke people here we are well no joke that striker did succeed in kidnapping xavier with putting a neural inhibitor on his on his head, and a former pupil whose striker's son is dilated for sure is in the form of Jason, and the uh, the plot which will soon ensue and unfold of capturing or getting all the mutants, because that was the uh, original striker plan. Who believes? That Xavier did his son harm, more harm than good. So he's hell-bent on destroying all the mutants. From your perspective, do you believe that to be the case? It seemed to be what he his, and maybe out of fear, and not being able to control them was his whole motivation. Especially with we what we find out later in movies such as Wolverine Origins, X-Men Origins Wolverine, rather. Oranges? Yeah, they're they're good in lemons and grapefruits. Oh my, just delicious. Mm. Just watch too much citrus is no good. I agree. Wears down the enamel in your teeth. <clears throat> but again, we go back to uh, what comes next that I have is uh, controlling Eureko. Same idea as with Magneto in the back of the head, the back of the neck. Just putting just whatever this this liquid type thing is. That uh, keeps them under under wraps, and here comes. Well, I don't know where they got the number from, but mutant one forty three is Jason, his son. Hey, I knew that was coming. Okay, and he is no small feat to uh, overcome because he. Uh, is able to make Xavier think that he's speaking to a little girl. And they're both in the room where Cerebro is. Cerebro? Magneto. Cerebro? Magneto. Let's call the whole thing off. Shout out to Rift Tracks for that wonderful joke. So while things are cutting back and forth in terms of scenes, and I don't mean just with Wolverine's claws, but we're at Bobby's parents' house now in Boston, and and uh, him being called Professor Logan, and the whole trying to explain to Bobby's parents and siblings about this mutant thing, and, and his mom saying, have you ever tried not being a mutant? Like it was a switch you can just turn on and off. That's an interesting line, and it's you go with the whole aspect of the characters in the X-Men universe that they're a parallel for the civil rights movement. They're a parallel for this. They're a parallel for that. Yeah. And any other thing. It's a parallel, to be honest, of if someone is gay. And that's the line, have you ever thought about not being that? Well, yeah. for some people, that's not possible. No. For no. all people, that's not possible. In your, in your nature, in your genetic makeup, if if that term applies. And, yeah, it's, once again, the parallels you see. And, and, it's, and it's interesting, and it's an interesting choice that that, scene is happening with Bobby because in the comics the continuity Bobby Drake is now gay so to have that kind of line and to have that kind of context behind it 
it's almost like a giveaway for what this is, you know, like for the future. For the future, yeah, which you don't see that right in the context of the movie, I don't think. But in the, you know, intercutting of what's happening, where we're back to now that, that guard that hooked up with Grace, with Mystique, and was injected with, well, what's going to make uh, the iron content in his blood go go up. But he goes to bring a tray of food to Magneto. And as he's going there, his fellow guard, who's at a computer, a desk, and scanning as he's walking through, there's something that is detected, but then it goes away. Like something something was, was up when this guard with the tray of food was going to go to Magneto. Something was about to was warning the other officer, but then it cleared up. So he was uh, okay to to go in. So it was kind of odd how they decided to do that little little thing. But Magneto realizes what's happened. Mystique is helping him to break out. The line is too much iron in your blood, which he then extracts from the guard, causing his death. Right. And three, like atoms. Proton, neutron, electron circling in the form of in the form of small you know, atoms or or metal metal balls start tearing apart this this prison of plastic and glass. He's able to make his uh, his breakout, and these spheres of metal can become stepping discs, so he can cross from his prison to the main building area and uh, you know make his his getaway. And get away, he does. So yeah, absolutely. Throughout the you know throughout the full movie, we're finding little pieces of development on the story. Uh, like it was already said, the storm and Nightcrawler thing. They have a conversation about the markings that Nightcrawler has there for his sins. Uh, storm saying sometimes anger can help you survive, which in her case would have been true. But but Nightcrawler responds by saying, "So can faith." Yeah, and we uh, we see that mostly in the fact that he prays. He has a rosary, a crucifix hanging at the end of it. Even a couple of other instances later in the movie, when he's teleporting, for example, into Cerebro, which he doesn't know what Magneto. it looks like. That's what he. That's his fallback on his power, not knowing where he's going and wh- where he could wind up. He could be in the middle of a steel or concrete structure which would essentially kill him because if he solidifies inside an object then game over man game over man what my dude that's <laughs> it my man my man that's another thing altogether and him praying the our father while before they teleport and even the the lord is my shepherd at another point in time so a significant religious component comes into this character who looks by all means with that tail, long tail, like a demon. Yeah. And yet has this religious component attached to him. I think it's one of the most, obviously they're humans, hum, uh, homo superior, but just something about that element, that religious element, the uh, humanization of the character it feels real. It feels like a real human being, you know? And we don't know, at least at this point in time, how he, Kurt w- Wag- Wagner. 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 I've always read it that way. But, it's, but yeah. it's V. Yeah, but it's a W when it's, you spell it German. out. It's German. German, they pronounce the uh, Ws as that Vs. That is correct, yes. 
that you don't know how he came to be in this particular appearance, regardless of the markings. Born that way, mutated into like that. Lady Gaga. He was born that way. Almost there. You go. Almost. Boy, I did not expect that reference from me today. Well, you I'll second that one. And of course, that Bobby's brother freaks out, calls the police, has the authorities come to the house, and Pyro cuts loose. After the police officer tells Logan to drop the knives because his claws are extended, I can't. Gets shot in the head, drops down. That was that, and the scene where shocking. He stabs the guy in the chest with his claws. Those were two of the most brutal things that I saw in this movie, and I was surprised they made it in a PG-13. Mm. That genuinely shocked me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now you mean Wolverine uh, stabbing the guy in the, uh, Correct. the it, mansion attack? That was intense. Yeah, yeah. It was. You weren't expecting it. What? Who didn't see that coming? He, back to Ultron, thank you very much. You're welcome. Are, am I? Yes. Sure. And, you know, you also get a conversation between Mystique and Nightcrawler. And wouldn't it be great if you could just blend in and imitate anybody, you know, change what you look like, even even their voice. Their voice. But she says we shouldn't have to. And there's a very valid point to be made there. Yeah. Because Be yourself. Old, be yourself and don't be fake and, and that kind of thing like I referenced before uh, Magneto and John aka Pyro talking what's your real name Pyro you are a god among insects never let anyone tell you different you are beautiful no matter what you say so yeah so that's helping to bring Pyro over to uh, Magneto's side planting the seeds Uh, a little later I noticed the uh, two different color eyes that Jason has and also in, in another shot of the little girl that Xavier perceives this character to be, one blue, one green eye, something ahead was subtle, but I didn't notice until this particular watching. Um, you, you also have a, a fight between Jean and Scott, although Scott, I was led to believe, was kind of being uh, manipulated into into fighting, but he kind of snaps out of it. Unfortunately, it results in this this dam that they're inside starting to be damaged, and that will, of course, be a significant factor a little later towards the end of the film. But he even says it, too. He says, I'm sorry, I I couldn't control myself, something to that effect. And you kind of see the relationship, the love between, I think, Scott and Gene. So we have that kind of solidified there for at least a time. But meanwhile, Logan is is there, and he finds his, what I've called his adamantium birthplace. Getting flashes of something going on here. Wait, somebody's flashing now? I know, it's incredible. It's amazing. Stupendous. Oh, we don't have a stupendous. Okay. Yet. Yes, correct. And the, the setup for the fight that Wolverine will then have with Lady Deathstroke, that, that strike. Deathstrike, says, strike, yeah, not stroke. Deathstrike. Oh, I'm getting those flip-flop. I used to think you were one of a kind, Wolverine. I was wrong. The only difference here now is that she's got the claws. Ten. She got the claws. Ten claws out of her fingernails. That's nine more than one. That's that's four more than Wolverine six. So there you go. Golly. And that was 
pretty uh, pretty intense with, with that fighting. And of course, they're both able to heal themselves, but depending on how rapidly one can inflict damage, might take longer to uh, to heal. But then, as I as I put, Lady Deathstrike gets uh, pumped up to the max. She's completely adamantiumized and becomes just a big old steel hunk of hunk of hunk of hunk of hunk of fill in the blank whatever I'm so sorry for bringing back that reference and she's to done that terrible movie she's gone oh ah oh ah <laughs> hey if somebody's gonna make a reference to Hall and Oates it's gonna have to be me that gone okay I was going Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds how did you get that oh until the oh ah came in <laughs> she's gone and you're gone yeah. How about finding, not now changing from finding all the mutants to to finding all the humans? And how did Magneto know, in the Cerebro room, what panels to switch around, for that to happen? I mean, it looked good, like something was happening, something was changing. Uh, I don't know. Switch the poles from right to left and left to right. The bat poles. Young Frankenstein. That's something else. Yeah. Okay. Change the poles from minus to plus and plus to minus. That's it. Right. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, there's been a change of plans as uh, the mystique impersonating striker says to, to Jason, there's been a change of plans. Find all the humans. And there's been a change of heart. Right, right. R.I.P. Tom Petty. A reference now to the Tom conversation. Tom Petty Yeah. Conversation between Logan and Stryker. Logan, of course, being pissed that you made me this, but, but Stryker correcting him correctly saying, as I recall, it was you who volunteered for the procedure. That is true. The acknowledgement of the Weapon X program in this movie is a very... its a Once again, it's for the comic geek sitting in the, you know, in the audience going, Oh my God, the Weapon X! <laughs> <laughs> I never thought that, but that's all part of the catch-up. To, to, uh, and a great condiment it is. It is. And catsup. Ketchup. Mm-hmm. Catsup. He's so talking to the ketchup again. Yeah, so now we're we're coming into um the the end of the movie essentially and getting out of the bursting dam and getting the ride out of there because the helicopter's gone because Magneto went with Mystique, who's flying it, Pyro goes with them also, and then the dam really starts to break. Um a rogue is able to take the bird the blackbird and give it an emergency landing. And and Logan tosses his dog tag at the feet of Stryker, who's chained now to a uh, wall that Magneto has, you know, a part that we didn't see because he was chained to the landing gear of the helicopter, but now now to the wall. One day, someone will finish what I've started, Wolverine. One day. Team Rocket's blasting off again. And the <laughs> dam really breaks loose. And now it's Gene who uh, really saves saves everyone. Doesn't let Scott... Anybody come out? Was able to uh, start the plane because it was having an issue. And how many times does Logan say she's gone? Oh, uh, oh, oh uh, you know what? It got to be at least six <laughs> times that that he says that. So that's but, the chorus. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of like you know, intuitively, I guess Logan knows that she's gone. But I'm I, I had made myself a little note. How does she know? How does he know that she's gone? Oh, uh, Scott oh, uh. is in is in complete grief, and they comfort and console each other Logan and Scott which I didn't necessarily completely expect but because they had very significant feelings towards Gene 
kind of bond, I guess, in that respect. And that's where Kurt comes in with the Lord is my shepherd. But the last thing, pretty much uh, to get things wrapped up, is the president who's about to make a speech. And it's uh, interrupted with the help of Storm and uh, Professor Xavier, I guess, freezing all the action. And, you know, because otherwise it's like, well, how did they all get into the Oval Office? Yeah. They weren't all teleported. But here's the William Stryker files. You see a couple of shots of Kurt and the president. And Kurt's saying like, hey, how you doing? I'm back. You know, that's kind of the uh, impression I got. And Professor X saying, how I know a little girl who can walk through walls. And that the war is coming. And that we're here to stay, Mr. President. The next move is yours. And Logan finishing up that scene by saying, we'll be watching. And now you go back to the mansion with Professor who's looking out the window. After speaking with Cyclops and Wolverine, the class comes in to get started. And he mentions T.H. White and the once and future king. So that reference comes back. And finally, Jean on a voiceover, because you don't see her, you hear her saying, mutation, it is the key to our evolution. By the way, that's how the first X-Men movie started with that same line. And then every so millennia, evolution leaps forward. Cut to a Phoenix-like image in Alkali Lake. And then we're done. Done, done. That was terrible, Peter. Mm. So now let's get into our overall take on what we thought of the movie. Myself, I'll be honest, I love this movie. And it is of the original X-Men trilogy, it is one of the strongest. And I would say a solid number three overall with, you know, the Logan movies, the second X-Men trilogy, Deadpool, just up there as one of the best X-Men movies. And one of the best comic book movie sequels in its own right. Would you agree? Yeah, I would. I really would. It, it definitely held up. I think I liked it more in this viewing. Same here. Maybe because I was doing a little more than just casually watching it. And I don't mean that when I say casually. It wasn't in the sense of I was doing something else and watching it. That happened over whatever period of time it was on cable TV. Now we're with a more subjective so eye. Now with a more critical yeah. and experienced and older viewing mechanism. I mean, other than, you know, the appearance of how some of the characters look in this movie, you know, like I said, the datedness of it in the sense of, wow, this is from the early 2000s. We're frosted tips away from, you know. And yet I don't have that jump out at me um, so much as I accept the way it, it is looking, but more so when we get into a first-class X-Men movie, because you know it's supposed to be set in the Correct. 60s. Yeah, it's a period piece. And the same thing for uh, Days of Future Past, with it being a decade later in the 70s. Right. So that didn't become a, detra a distraction or, or a detraction or even a, a point of interest I say it's just to funny. pick it up, but uh, yeah, and yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely loved this movie, and the pacing was really good mm -hmm. for a movie that's two hours and fourteen minutes. It flew by. It, it went by. You weren't really looking, I don't think, to see okay how much longer. You're intrigued by the characters. You're enjoying the relationships between them, and it's just a fun movie. And. Of all the X-Men movies, yeah, I would say this is definitely at least a solid two or three, you know, up there. And for some reason, I just remembered there was uh, one 
young student character who you see twice and does the same thing twice. That is, stick out his forked toad-like tongue. Who was that supposed to be, Um, in your opinion? I don't know if it had any relevance to someone we know from the comics, but we just we just see that he has a uh, a long and f- a long and forked tongue. He's one of the youngins who we don't hear him speak, but he's being carried by Wolverine at the end when he confronts Stryker, and uh, early in the movie as well with sticking out his tongue as well for the first time in this movie. So yeah, for me, I gotta say this movie gets a solid, 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 solid. Four out of five. And just a good film. Just really cool. And if you want to watch this, give it a watch, obviously, because you're, you know, you're listening to this show. You might as well have watched the movie. <laughs> it it rocked. They they absolutely knew what they were doing and it did set a precedent for what is a good comic book movie sequel. And this movie really isn't talked about that much as it used to be, which is a surprise. But would you say that the lack of this movie getting talked about is because of the increasing number of comic book movies? Like Blade Number 2. Blade 2 is considered one of the best superhero movies, comic book movies. Mm -hmm. But again, nobody talks about that. And that's news to me, but we're going to get into that in the month of October. We sure will. For For sure. I definitely enjoyed watching this again, learning a little bit more and and getting a little more sense of the characters, which was terrific. Um, I'd give it at least a four. four, I'm going to go four and a quarter. Because you got to be one step ahead of of me, huh? Mm. Eh, Or a quarter step. I was actually going to go four and a quarter, to be completely honest. Well. So now you're going to go four and a half? Now what? (laughs) Sure. I was gonna, I was gonna go with you f- with the four out of five too. But if we're getting competitive here now, then that's gonna have to change. But a lot of it was, you know, solid and and good character development and understanding the relationships they had with each other. Some things you just had to kind of go along with what was happening. So, but the part that I, I was was forgetting and hopefully got back to now, at least in my mind, was you said about it not being talked about. Uh, was it because of the proliferance of more, so many more Marvel movies? I don't know if it was so much that as the X-Men movies were of their own on the side, not all part of the MCU. I think maybe it got lost in the sauce with the other X-Men movies that came after Last Stand. Because we got into, again, First Class, and then that was played to HE Double Hockey Sticks and back on FX and so on. So As someone got, who doesn't watch TV, man, oh man, am I lucky. <laughs> you you got to know that group of characters with the old school yellow and black costumes, which are good for the time and so on, and then ones that are that follow there. So you're you're getting more accustomed to the general public is I think that's watching these things used to seeing what they look like in those incarnations. Um, but going back to this was a treat. Was I think really really good to see all these characters and how they interacted with each other. I'm not sure what else could have been done with them since it was over two hours. How far do you want to go? But you've also got now some setup, some some maybe some pieces that you didn't have a full puzzle with respect to Wolverine, with respect to Stryker, 
just to name two characters. There's no, I don't even think, inkling of a a Weapon X or Weapon 11 or what will develop into Deadpool. Not yet. So now, Eddie, before we end this episode, we want to bring you over to our interview with Arrow showrunner and X-Men Gold writer, Mark Guggenheim. Let's do it. All right, we are joined at Terrificon 2018, and I am joined alongside by a man who is working as technically a double agent for both Marvel and the distinguished competition themselves, DC Comics, their television division. Mark Guggenheim. Mark, how are you doing today? Very good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Now, Mark, first off, let's get into how you got into comic books in general. What was the company that got you to enjoy the medium of comics? Um, Before... When I was first growing up, it was DC. Um, in fact, one of my earliest memories was sitting on the floor of my bedroom, flipping through a Superman comic. I don't even know how I got it. Um, I wasn't reading because I was too young to read. I just was looking at the pictures and was totally entranced. Um, and that was, you know, like I said, it's one of my earliest memories. I don't even really remember how I got into comics. I was always into comics, um, and. You know, it was from there that I, you know, sort of started to branch out. Um, you know, I got the Mego uh, dolls, um, and I, I remember very vividly in my memory of buying my first Mego doll. It was a Superman, um, and just the idea, like, I didn't even know that such a thing existed. It was it was so exciting, and I bought at this local, what was back then called a stationery store, um, which is, you know, really where I got all my... You know, original comic books. Um, in fact, I own the spinner rack that I bought my very first comic book off of. I'm incredibly jealous of that. Yeah, it's very it's my favorite, uh, my my all-time favorite possession. Is it the Hey Kids comics? It's got Archie's head and all them. Uh, it doesn't have the Archie one. It's it's, uh, but it is like one. Of, it is one of the Hey Kids comics. Uh, so awesome. It's it's a different model than than that one. Now, how did you discover Marvel? Well, I was first exposed to Marvel without realizing it uh, by watching a television show that was called The Electric Company. The Electric Company was basically uh, an older version of Sesame Street. The idea was once you aged out of Sesame Street, you would then watch this show. And they had a live-action Spider-Man, um, and that Spider-Man completely creeped me out. He, he didn't talk. He only like spoke in like these word balloons that he would point to and... He was just really, really, really creepy and kind of scared me for a long time um, until uh, from that same stationery store, uh, my dad bought me uh, a copy of, there was, there was this publisher called Pocket Comics, Pocket Books, and they published uh, collections of the original Stan Lee and Steve Ditko Spider-Mans in a book that was like the size of a paperback novel. And... I got it, and I just devoured it. I absolutely loved it. Suddenly, Spider-Man didn't freak me out. He, rather, it was the opposite. I was completely entranced, um, and that was sort of my gateway drug to, to Marvel. And then you looked at the, the live-action version again, and it just started all over again. It was like a Yeah, re, I got re-triggered. I got re-triggered. Uh, it was very, very scary. Now, how did you get into working over at Marvel in the first place? Well, um, I was writing for Law & Order at the time, and my manager... Dunk, dunk. Yes, um, and... And my manager at the time, uh, she somehow found out about a guy named uh, Ruan Jayatalecki, who was working at Marvel at the time. He was doing a bunch of different things, but one of the things he was kind of doing was being the, for lack of a better word, liaison between Hollywood and 
Marvel. And, and this was a time when Joe Straczynski was writing comics and Kevin Smith was writing Daredevil. So, like, those guys kind of opened up Marvel for, quote-unquote, Hollywood writers. And, you know, Law & Order was a, a nice credit. Um, and she made an introduction uh, to Ruan. And then Ruan uh, hooked me up with Axel Alonso, who at the time wasn't the editor-in-chief, just a, a regular editor. Um, and Axel bought my first, uh, you know, comic book work. Yeah, they opened the door for me, and Axel bought uh, this Punisher story off of me. And um, he liked the Punisher script so much, he offered me a chance to write the Wolverine tie-in uh, to Civil War. And that kind of is what put me on the map. Um, awesome. And ever since, I've, I've been writing off and on. And you actually worked on Blade for a very brief time. Yeah, that was Tom. That was my first gig after Wolverine. Uh, Tom Brevoort hired me to uh, relaunch Blade, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm proud to say we have the longest running. It's at 12 issues. It's the longest running, uh, you know, run on Blade. Now, as someone who works for the Distinguished Competition and is used to just these amazing kind of shows, some people have speculated whether or not. Blade could come in as a television series. Oh, I, by the way, well, Blade was a television series. Jeff Johnson, Dave Boyer did a Blade we, television series. We try not to bring that up, Mark. Uh, we try not to bring just, that up. Just saying, just saying. Um, yeah, I think. Look, I, I, you know, here's the funny thing. Blade is actually the property that I think really sort of launched this golden age of live-action superheroes. You know, with the original Blade movies that that Boyer uh, wrote, and you know. Guillermo del Toro directed uh, the second Blade movie, and I think, you know, I, I think, I, I, like most people, I'm waiting and going like, hey, wait a second, why is no one doing anything with this character? And, I mean, truth be told, I think you could do a Blade live-action series, I think you could That's do right. another Blade series of movies. Um, that character is so rich and, and so ripe for reinvention uh, in the modern, quote-unquote, modern era, um, I don't know why no one's done it yet. Now, a lot of people have said that if that happens, they may do, because they've. it's been rumored that the Spirits of Vengeance and all them, they may bring them to, like, a Netflix kind of series of Ghost Rider, you know, bring them over from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and whatnot. If it was your decision and you were in charge of doing a Netflix Blade series, what would you want to go with as your overall storyline? I'm going to throw you on the spot right now. Yeah, that's really... You know, I'll tell you, I was very enamored with what I... I not to be self-serving, but I was very enamored of what I did on the on the Blade run that I did with Howard Chaikin. And not because I did it, but because at the end of the day, I approach everything as a fan first. And I really write what I want to see. So what I would love to see, quite frankly, is a, a Blade live action series that did what we did, where you were telling a present day story, but you were also kind of a la Arrow, ironically, flashing back to the origins of Blade. Because I think there's something very interesting about Blades, the idea of Blades' childhood and Blades, you know, uh, you know, growing up and maturing and becoming a vampire hunter. Um, I think doing that juxtaposed with a present-day story would be really cool. Um, and yeah, I mean, the idea of of expanding Blade's world into you know the spirits of vengeance ultimately that would be awesome. Um, you know, I, I what would be I think really really great is if. They, you know, relaunch Blade as a Netflix series, but use the series to slowly and organically, you can't rush these things, but slowly and organically build up to the spirits of vengeance. That would be awesome. You eventually would go on to work on the character of Spider-Man. Yeah. 
and with your amazing, no pun intended, <laughs> run, are there any elements of the Spider-Man character and Peter Parker that you relate to as a person? Uh, the Parker luck. Uh, you know, I've been very, very fortunate in my career. I've had a lot of lucky breaks in my career. I feel like that sort of makes up for all the, like, you know, unlucky moments I've had in my life. And sometimes it's, like, small things. It's like, you know, it's just things just not going your way at a critical moment in time. Um, but the Parker luck really speaks to me. You know, when I was growing up, you know, the fact that Peter was unpopular and bullied, um, I was bullied a lot as a kid. Uh, that really, really spoke to me. Um, you know, I was definitely one of those kids who read about Peter being bullied and, you know, took some solace in the fact that it wasn't just me. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why it, the original, you know, Ditko, Stan Lee run uh, spoke to me so much. Now, you had mentioned off mic that you related the Parker Luck also this weekend to something involving Wolverine writer Charles Soule. Yeah, he and I were uh, playing blackjack together. And look, Charles is a, actually a very good blackjack player. He really knows what he's doing. But I was seeing the cards he was drawing. I'm like, I'm not getting those cards. And I really thought, wow, there's a really... This luck thing is a real thing. Um, because watching the hands he was being dealt versus the hands I was being dealt, I felt like, wow, this guy really has really good luck. Now, speaking of Charles Soule with his work on Wolverine, let's go drift over to the X-Men Gold stuff going on. Sure. First off, how did you get onto that title? Like... Uh, you know, I ask myself that question every day, quite frankly. Um, basically, uh, Dan, I wrote, uh, I did a, an arc on Adjectiveless X-Men, which was the all-female X-Men team. And I did that for uh, Daniel Ketchum and Mike Martz. Um, and when da uh, Mike left and Daniel got promoted uh, and they were looking to relaunch the X-Titles, uh, Daniel called me up and said, would you be interested in writing, you know, X-Men Gold? I don't even know if at the time we knew it was going to be called Gold and Blue, but uh, he explained that it would be a flagship X-Men title, and that's all he had to say to me. I mean, that, that literally is a childhood dream of mine come true. Now, as someone who is a big X-Men fan and watching the relationship through your run progress between Peter Rasputin, Colossus, and Kitty Pride, I loved seeing it, and just watching all of it, it reminded me very much the writing style, especially of like a Grant Morrison with New X Men, Joss Whedon with Astonishing, and even Chris Claremont's run on Uncanny. Well, thank you, by the way, thank you very, very much. Uh, I, I, that really means a lot to me because those are the three runs that inspired my gold run the most. Um, so the fact that there's even just like a tinge of those three runs in there for you is it means a lot. Um, you know, I, I've been, you know, reading X-Men for nearly 40 years now, and I my first issue of X-Men was 130, Uncanny 139, which is the Welcome to the X-Men Kitty Pride. Hope you enjoy the experience uh, cover. So I feel like I've been on the X-Men or with the X-Men as long as Kitty has. Um, so she's a really important character to me. And you've done callbacks to certain moments in the history of the X-Men, and I read it a little while ago. I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly, but correct me if I'm wrong, but you did reference Professor Xavier as a jerk, didn't you? Because I swear I remember seeing a splash page during your run with that. Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't... I, I love that issue. It's so great, I absolutely great, love it? that issue. Um, I used to have a shirt with that. I know. That was... Fa I used to have, like, a patch, um, oh. you know, back in the day when there were patches, but... I mean, he is a jerk. Uh, in that issue, he really, really was. I, I love that era. Um, you know, that Claremont-Paul Smith run uh, with the end of the Brood Saga was so fantastic, and just every issue 
had some new big surprise in it. No one actually, no one really talks about the Paul Smith run, like just his art in general either. Like his art is fantastic. I love, love Paul Smith's art, um, and it, it was kind of like it was a revelation, quite frankly, when he came on the scene as a guy no one had ever heard of before. And bam, he's drawing, you know, Uncanny X-Men, knocking it out of the park. Now, speaking of, you know, really phenomenal artists, you actually get to work alongside Phil Noto on the covers. He, who was the one that suggested to bring him over on the title? Um, I think it was Darren Shan. Darren's uh, my current editor on X-Men Gold. And he called me up and said Phil is going to be doing the covers for the remainder of the run. I was, I was so thrilled. I've been a longtime fan of Phil's work. You know, what I love about Phil's artwork is, it, first of all, his style is, I think, really unique and original. It's, it's got this sort of soft, you know, almost diffused uh, focus look. Um, and we were talking, you know, offline about how it, he always, like, captures these little snapshots, these little moments in time. And I think that that's really, really accurate and on point. Um, it's almost like 1960s style, too. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, I, I love how just unique his voice is as an artist. Um, he really... He really tells a story with every cover, and like I was actually looking at the cover of X Men Thirty, X Men Gold Thirty, where it's the wedding issue, and um, if you look at the cover with an eye towards what's inside, you realize the cover's actually a huge spoiler. Like he's buried a spoiler inside the cover in these subtle little ways, and uh, I kind of love it. It, it. it plays as a cover for this issue that's a wedding issue, um, but it also plays as the cover. Uh, even after you read the story inside. It's it's really cool. And it's almost like a new renaissance for the X-Men because not just, you know, in regards to on film, what we may see in the very near future with the Fox deal, but just on the whole with the X-Men over at Marvel Comics. You have Ed Pisker doing X-Men Second Genesis. Yep. You have um, Matthew Rosenberg, who is going to be coming on very soon with Uncanny X-Men. Yep. And I want to know, what is, first off, have you read Pisker's uh, work on that new X-Men title, uh, retro title? Uh, yeah, I have. It's great. You mean X-Men Redesign? There we go. Yeah, uh, Grand yes, Design. Sorry. Yes. Uh, Grand Design. Thank you. Yes, really, really great. Uh, awesome stuff. And he's really, you can tell he has a great love of those characters and the rich history the X-Men have. Now, since recently, much like how they elect a pope, we recently got a billow of a smoke of X up in the Marvel uh, headquarters. And I want to know, is there any advice you would want to give to Matthew Rosenberg for working on the X-Men title? You know, I'll tell you, the only advice I would give, he's already doing. He's already following, which is, you know, it's very clear from his writing and his run on Astonishing and Phoenix Resurrection that he loves these characters and he knows these characters and he he does what I would have advised which is just let the characters write themselves those characters you know particularly because of all the years Chris Claremont was writing it those characters have such specific voices and such specific identities that I think if you just listen to them they really write themselves what would you say is one of the hardest things of dealing with the continuity of the X-Men? Because there's so much. I know. And it, I tell you, you know, I just recently got taken a task on Twitter by a couple of fans who, who felt like this interaction between Rachel and uh, Jean Grey, adult Jean Grey, uh, was, was out of continuity. And in part it was because I was going for this moment of snark that didn't quite play on the page the way it played in my head. Um, but, but the other piece of it is, is like, even though I've been reading X-Men comics for, you know, almost 40 years now and read just about every X-Men comic there is, even, e- even with that 
body of, of work in my head, it is impossible to track everything. And I, I look, I admit, there are some fans who can uh, track it. For me, I, I find it nearly impossible. And, you know, people are saying, like, do your homework. I'm like, I've been doing my homework for 40 years, and you got to give a guy a break. There is, there, you know... I, there are issues like you know, people are referencing like panels from 20 years ago you know one exchange like that's that's impressive that you have that that knowledge uh, I do not uh, I don't have that encyclopedic knowledge I've I would say I've got a pretty good knowledge base but um, yeah it's it's very hard to compete with the fans so now mark before we go how can people get a hold of you on social media uh, on Twitter uh, is probably the best way. I, I do enjoy interacting with the fans on Twitter. Um, the good ones. I, the, the good, good most. I, I've been lucky. I would say the vast majority have been really, really good, um, and the re- interactions I've had with them were very, are very positive. Um, and uh, I, they can find me. The good ones can find me at uh, M Guggenheim on Twitter. Very cool, Mark. It was an absolute pleasure. Awesome. This was really fun. Thank you so much. Once again, big thank you to Mark Guggenheim for guesting on this episode and taking the time to speak with me about his work on X-Men Gold. And if you are interested, definitely check out his run of X-Men Gold, which also starts with X-Men Prime, and then you go into Gold. Check it all out on Marvel Unlimited. I love the hell out of that run. And there's just so many cool little things, especially... The, the series is wrapping up right now, and you're going to be treated to the Phil Noto covers. And they are friggin' gorgeous, like I said during the interview with Mark. So, once again, thank you to Mark. And we'd like to thank you for listening to this episode today. And as Eddie, always. As always. Eddie, the next episode is going to be what? X-Men The Last Stand. I'm scared, Eddie. That movie was not good. Yeah, but Dabadoo. Another watch may help. Probably not. Probably not. The no, 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 no. You much? You must. I mean, Rotten Tomatoes gave it a pretty bad review, Eddie. Just saying, the score on there is pretty abysmal. Yeah, well, there are not Rotten Tomatoes always. Oh, but that movie was pretty rotten. Some were pretty good, right off the vine. So. Before we go, how can people get a hold of us on social media? I'm glad I asked that, Peter. I am, too. Go on Facebook.com slash... The Marvelists. Give us a like-ski on there. Thank you. Go on Twitter at... The Marvelists. Give us a follow on there collectively, and then you can also follow myself at Peter Melnick, and Eddie will just scream at you from far away. Would you, Eddie? No. I need my voice for my radio job. That's true. Also... Go on. Go on. Go on. Instagram at? The Marvelists. Give us a follow on there. That's our collective account. And you can follow myself on Instagram at Peter Melnick and yourself? Eddie, 9193. And also drop us a line in our email bag. Questions, comments, strongly worded letters. We'll read them. We will read them. We will answer them. Mm. And we will enjoy it. I'm talking about the movie It. That's a good movie. Oh, M.G. But also we'll enjoy reading your letter, I guess. I also. Guess. <laughs> the letter of the day is E. I'm sorry, I'm just being selfish. <laughs> I, I like your humor. You're a good egg, Eddie. Uh, anyway. Also, there is a wide variety of ways you can listen to this fine show. Wide. 
You can listen to us on Stitcher Radio, available for all iOS and Android devices, just like the other app we're on, TuneIn Radio, again, available for all iOS and Android devices. And if you're an iPhone user like myself, mm-hmm. if you're an Apple user like myself, or even if you're on a Mac, or even if you're on a PC using iTunes, whatever, go on iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe to this show, and give a five-star if you're enjoying what we're talking about. Also, once again, Stitcher.com slash premium, and use the promo code at checkout. Marvelists. And when you do, you get a free one month of Stitcher Premium, and you'll be able to get a crap ton, once again, of content, including the WTF archives of Mark Marin, the Smodcast archive, as well as Weird Al Yankovic's concert library from this past tour. Oh, yeah, and Wolverine the Long Night. Snicked, bub. And if you stay on for Stitcher Premium after your one month has expired, it only costs $4.99 a month, people. That's chump change. That's maybe a dollar more than the standard Marvel book or the cost of a regular Marvel event book. That's only for one book. Exactly. But we think you should sign up, at least for the first month, because then we end up getting commission fed partially. <laughs> hey, just being honest here, people. It helps support the show, helps support what we're doing. It helps out going back for uploading costs because it actually does cost money to upload this show it costs money every month costs quite a bit also for what we have planned in the very near future so yeah stitcher.com slash premium and use at checkout that promo code marvelous thank you so for peter melnick i'm peter melnick and i'm eddie wilson excelsior